Let us pray together. Father, as we come before you, having seen such a glorious picture of you in the song that we've just sung, we're reminded again of our weakness and the need that we have to hear your voice, Lord. So we pray that as we come before you, Lord, to look at your word, you would touch our hearts once again, draw our eyes and our gaze once again to Christ our Savior, we pray. I would like to um, draw us again to our study of Hebrews chapter 11. And I would like to recap our main points from our previous week's sermon. You'll recall that as we went through the book of... um, We've been going slowly through the book of Hebrews, looking at various people who are commended for their faith. And as we looked in the passage last week, I made the comment that often passages in Hebrews 11 are talked about and the rest of the book is not mentioned very frequently. So I wanted to place chapter 11 in the context of the whole book And we went through a very lengthy introduction, going through chapter by chapter, the context of chapter 11, and even went beyond chapter 11 to chapter 12, talking about what the book of Hebrews is about. And as you look at the book of Hebrews, there's three or maybe four movements between comparisons of the old covenant to the new covenant, showing how people under the old covenant responded and how we under the new covenant should respond in a greater and better way. Following each time that the, uh, the writer to the, uh, to the Hebrews goes at, from a comparison of the old covenant to the new, he issues that with warnings and exhortations to trust and have faith in Christ. He starts off by saying how Jesus is the supreme communication of God. Whilst God spoke in many ways and at many times through his prophets, Now he has spoken to us in his son. He issues this with warnings that if the people were expected to listen under the old covenant, how much more should we, having received the revelation of who Christ is, respond in faith and trust? Jesus not only is the supreme communication of God in Christ, he is greater than Moses. And Moses, we saw, was not just Moses the man. Moses, the figurehead of the old covenant, Jesus is greater than him. And then what issues from that revelation of who Jesus is, is a triple repetition of a warning. Therefore, if you hear his hearts today, do not harden your hearts as you did in the wilderness. Repeated three times. The writer moves on from there to talk about the absolute supremacy of Christ's priesthood. If old priests could sympathize because of their weakness... How much more can Christ, who is eternally taken on, our human nature? Moreover, Jesus is not only of a supreme, he's, uh, he's not only a supreme high priest, he's from a greater and more, more ancient priesthood, one that figuratively the Levitical priesthood paid offering and deference to. Jesus has been triply appointed by the Father, both by his truthful character, his oath, and by the power of his indestructible life, making Jesus the infinitely greater guarantor of a better covenant. What a fitting high priest we have, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, yet eternally having taken our nature, who can sympathize with our weakness, who was tempted in every way, yet without sin, exalted now above the heavens, who himself has no need of sacrifices for his own sins, having no sins of his own, 
and who now is seated at the right hand of the majestic throne in heaven. Not only is Jesus from an a more ancient priesthood, a supreme priesthood. Jesus has a supreme offering, a greater offering, a better offering, a once and for all offering, now staying in a perpetual role as priest, not limited by death. And after having shown Christ and the, the great difference and gulf there is between the old covenant and the new covenant, a, wish, uh, a warning then is issued. Therefore, do not con- con- continue in deliberate sin, and a call not to shrink back, but a call for perseverance and endurance. Ultimately, after having gone through the passage in Hebrews chapter 11, to place our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. This is where the passage goes from. And as I mentioned last week, the whole feeling through the book of Hebrews is that If such and such a response was required under the old covenant with so much less revelation, how much more should we respond to God with faith and love and devotion now that we have seen the fullness of God's plan revealed in Christ, who is the supreme communication of God, who is himself the supreme great high priest, who has offered the supreme offering, who is the revelation of God himself, And after having gone through that, he goes and compares, calling us to say, keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And then goes on from there saying, we do not come like the ancient and the old covenant came to Sinai, where they they were terrified to come close to the mountain. But we have come to God, whose kingdom cannot be shaken, the kingdom of God. So let us offer acceptable worship to our God with trembling and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So the question, which is the summary, I think, of Hebrews, is that if the light of grace shone dimly in the old covenant, although rays of, it light, of its light and the glory of the gospel were seen in the old covenant, what should the full brightness of the gospel produce in us? A small spark of red light led them to faith in heaven. When the sun of righteousness shines over us, particularly in the book of Hebrews, what excuse do we have to cleave to this world and not to cling always and only to Christ our Savior? The twilight is a time when the sun illumines the sky but is not visible. The old covenant is like the twilight of the gospel. It illuminated the sky, but Christ, the Son of Righteousness, was not seen. And now, having seen the glory of God in the face of Christ, how much more should we respond in faith and trust and love for our Lord Jesus? And yet I would, I would push us to say, it is not just that we must try harder looking at these examples of faith. Our response should be, as is the start of chapter 12, to look again on Jesus our Savior. This passage, I believe, is not supposed to give us undue attention to the individuals, but on the God to whom they have faith in. And now who is revealed in a better and more clear and more full way, who has revealed God's plan infinitely more than it was in the Old Covenant, How much more should we not look to them as the people we should emulate, but look to the God to whom they point to? It is not as if 
we are supposed to crack the whip and say, go and try to be like David, go and try to be like Abraham. Whilst there are good examples, it is not because of the merits of their faith as such. It must point us that our eyes would ever be fixed on Christ our Savior. So, we come to our passage this morning, and it was an unusual passage, and I think it's actually a, passage, a part of the 11th chapter of Hebrews, which isn't preached very frequently, because by the time you've got here, a lot of good examples of faith have already been, um, been presented. And in fact, the writer to, to the book, in the book of Hebrews believes he's already made his point. He starts off in verse 32 saying, What more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, uh, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets. He believes he's made his point already. He doesn't need to go over more and more examples. He's made his point, and yet he, he, he shows and, ex- and gives examples of some period people between the time of Moses and David, maybe not as famous as Moses, who was the figurehead of the Old Covenant, Abraham, to whom the Great Covenant was made, Abel and others. He points us to some maybe smaller giants of faith, passing mentions to David and Samuel, who would have been towers of faith, but also to Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. Verse 33, it says that who through faith conquered kingdoms, this probably refers to David, administered justice, maybe Samuel, and gained what was promised. Not sure who that's pointing to. Who shut the mouth of the lions and quenched the fury of the flames, pointing to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, had, uh, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned into strength, perhaps Hezekiah, and who was powerful in battle and rooted foreign, uh, foreign armies. Not sure who. Verse 35, women received back from the dead, uh, raised to life again, and not, interestingly, only obliquely pointing to Elijah and Elisha, but to the widow at Zarephath and the Shunammite widow, uh, woman. But let's go back, because I was intrigued as I read verse 32. Because there was one name that was a bit of an odd name for me, which was Jephthah. Jephthah is a bit of an infamous character in the, in the Old Testament. He is known most famously for having won a great victory in battle, and then making a very rash and foolish vow to the Lord. What does he say? Whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me, I will, uh, when I return in peace from the Ammonites, the people he defeated in battle, shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. What a foolish thing to say. And I actually wonder, what was he thinking? Was he expecting to come across a sheep walking out of his house? Or a goat? The only thing I could think of is maybe he thought his mother-in-law was coming out the house or something. <laughs> but what a foolish thing to say. What a rash thing to say. He was also a man of disrepute, the son, an Ill- illegitimate son, who was the head of a gang of uh, rebels and miscreants. He did speak very stridently on God's behalf, but hardly the type of person you would put on the brochure of faith, isn't it? I don't know if your companies where you work have brochures and they want to show a cross-section of the company, but they only put the good-looking people on the, on the brochure. 
It's almost as if, as if we come to verse 32, all the good-looking people have been shown, and now Jephthah's on the back, on the brochure of faith, and he's not such a great example. It seems clear to me that it's not the intention of the author to expect the reader to aspire to Jephthah's life at all. There's a previous example just further back, not in the verses that we read, but you can refer to it. Rahab, very shady past, an outsider to God's community, also included here. A woman of disrepute, an outsider, mentioned by name, where others are mentioned only obliquely, like, uh, like I mentioned, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, they think, is mentioned uh, obliquely as well. But I think the purpose of this is to show the universality that faith is the criterion for inclusion into God's people. It's not the great things that their faith achieves. It is solely their faith. With the greats, we had Enoch who walked with the Lord. Abel, whose blood's... We have others, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses... Great figures, yet for all they achieved, it is only their faith in God that saved them. Faith in the promise. Although we don't celebrate Jephthah's weakness at all, it is sometimes knowing that it is faith alone that saves, that encourages us, isn't it? Without having these great heroes of faith. I remember some time ago I read, I started reading, I never finished actually, the, the diary of George Whitefield. George Whitefield, sometimes he's called. And I remember being a bit discouraged by reading it because the guy, amazing life of piety and devotion to God. I was like, I, can, I can't even compare with this guy. I can't wake up so early in the morning and study the word and how he would read the Bible and with Matthew Henry's commentary next to him and he'd be reading and praying the scriptures for hours. An impossible standard, yet even people like that, the sole basis why they are acceptable to God is because of their empty-handed grasp on the Savior. And if these people, like Jephthah, as contemptible as his life is, can be included in this chapter as someone who is regarded as someone who had faith in God, shouldn't it give us some hope? For not all of us have lives of great, spectacular victories in the name of the Lord, do we? As much as people would love to promise that from the pulpit. Go and have faith and you'll be moving mountains and you'll have a great victory and a breakthrough. Unfortunately, life's a little bit more ordinary than that. And it should fill us with some hope, I think. That I would say a despicable, contemptible character like Jephthah is commended by God by name for having faith. Having hardly any revelation compared to what we have. He had the law for sure. But as we read in the book of Judges, every man pretty much did as he, f he felt fit because there was no king in the land. But how much more do we have under the new covenant? A full picture of Christ our Savior. An amazing picture of Christ in the book of Hebrews, don't we have? speaking about realities which are described nowhere else in the scripture at all. So what should our response be to this? 
It should be to have hope. But also, as the, the purpose of this passage is, is to persevere in faith. The whole purpose of this passage is perseverance, just beforehand. Do not shrink away from your faith. We are not those who shrink away. Even in your imperfection, hold on to Christ. Maybe even since you've become a Christian, you've had all sorts of disasters in your life. Maybe your church history is not, uh, you don't have the greatest track record. Yet hold on to Christ, always and only. Verse 36, changing subject a little bit. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskin, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. So, uh, as some of the commentators believe, the man who was sawn in half is referring to Isaiah. Isaiah, who wrote the book that some have labeled the gospel in the Old Testament. The one who himself saw the holiness of God revealed. And whoever after referred to God as the Holy One of Israel. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so that they, may get, they might gain even better resurrection. Often people think that this is talking about the intertestamental period between the book of Malachi and, and Matthew. Persecuted with no sight of the fulfillment of God's promises in their life, yet refusing to recant their faith being assured of things unseen, even though they received little or no relief or comfort in this life. And what does this passage say? The world was not worthy of them. Exhibiting a faith that the world was not worthy of witnessing. We heard a few weeks ago from, I don't remember who, a, a missionary from Turkey, of a pastor who was, some men had joined his church, and who had shown some interest in the gospel, and then finally when he was locking up, they showed interest to discuss some things, locked him in the office, tortured him, and murdered him for the sake of Christ. Yet we look at these people in the Old Testament with so much less revelation of God's salvific plan, ready to die, not seeing the fruits of their labor at all in their lifetime, not even seeing the fulfillment of the promises made to Israel through the forefathers, not seeing the crushed head of the serpent that was promised to Eve, not seeing all the nations of the world being blessed through the seed of Abraham, not seeing the son of David who would sit on his throne, not seeing any of this, yet persevering in their faith. How much more should we who have Christ persevere in our faith? If you are feeling weak, and feel that you cannot continue. See this passage and look at our Savior. And pray that the view of God in Christ alone would be sufficient to strengthen you through the various trials that you face. All of these were commended, verse 39, all of these were commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. They gained glimpses of the promise, some of them were brought to the land, but yet they never entered into the rest that God had promised. 
They had heard the promise, in you all the nations of the world would be blessed, and they saw it partially in Joseph, but never in its true fulfillment. They heard about the son of David who would sit on his throne and rule with justice and righteousness. They saw partially the the splendor of the kingdom in Solomon, but they didn't see it. And none of them saw the the full forgiveness of sin and the new heart that was promised where God's law would be written. None of them saw the fulfillment of that. And even having entered the land, they didn't enter God's rest. And yet they persevered in faith. So my statement would be just to reiterate, if they persevered in the twilight of the gospel, how much should we, under the full blaze of the gospel sun, persevere in faith? Verse 40, since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. We have something better in Christ, don't we, than they did. We have the fullness of revelation of who Jesus is presented in his word and particularly in the book of Hebrews with such wonderful descriptions of what happened when Christ hung on the cross for us. Descriptions of Christ entering a perfect tabernacle by means of his own blood. What wonder that we should be be given glimpses into heaven such as this. In hearing such things, cast your eyes on the Savior and persevere. Do not give up. Together with them, we will all be made perfect. Even the, the... the saints under the old covenant, and us together, all of us together, we will be perfected in Christ. They had a distant view of Christ. We have a near view of Christ. For the true character of faith is ever to keep God before our eyes and act respondingly. There is a phrase that is used among some some circles. It's a Latin phrase which says, calls us to live quorum Deo. To live ever before the face of God. And this is what our faith calls us to do. How much more should we gaze on him who has revealed himself so fully in the person of Christ our Savior? So therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great crowd of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us so closely and run with perseverance and endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Let us consider him this morning. And now we will come to consider him once again. We look back historically to Calvary, where God the Son came himself, bearing the eternal punishment for our rebellion against the Father. We look back in faith to the reality spoken of in Hebrews, where Christ went whilst on the cross into a greater and more perfect tent, entering once and for all into the holy place, not by the means of blood or by the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood and thus securing for us eternal redemption. We look back as well and remember, don't we, when under the preaching of the gospel, the Holy Spirit has opened each one of our eyes to accept and see the beauty of the work of Christ in saving us. 
the work that Christ did whilst we were yet sinners, which was applied to us by the work of the Holy Spirit. And also we come looking forward in anticipation of the day when we shall feast at the table of the Lamb to partake with all those who have gone before us. With all the redeemed, we shall look upon the face of him whose face to behold for us who are redeemed is indeed life eternal, seeing in him the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, all in the face of Christ Jesus. I would like to invite the deacons to come forward as we prepare to take communion together. I'll pray and then I'll ask Rob to come and lead us in a hymn. Father, as we come before you this morning, we come with reverence and awe. Yet we come, Lord, with empty hands grasping solely to our Savior. Lord, as we take time now to to remember you, Lord, in the sharing of the bread and of the cup, Lord, together, I pray that you would touch us again, Lord, fill us again with wonder and awe, with all that you have done for us in our Savior. We look back historically to the work at Calvary, Lord. We look in faith, Lord, to what happened whilst you hung on the cross, Lord. We look back, Lord, and remember in our own lives the times when you touched our heart under the preaching of your word to accept Christ as our Savior. And we look forward to, Lord, to the time when we will share in anticipation, Lord, the feast of the Lamb, seeing all your goodness in Christ, Lord, and finding in him our all in all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.